Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, it's Lainey. It's Duanna. And welcome to Show Your Work. Friday edition. Friday edition. The first time we are posting the podcast on a Friday. And yet we don't have drinks. This is all very backward. You're right. What the fuck? <laughs> how, how is it that we don't have a drink? It's because, yeah, we normally podcast on a Friday where we go free. It's let's, true. Let's see what we'll do. Let's see how we can get through this without alcohol. So you see my ploy did not work. <laughs> no, we're not. I'm not getting up now to pour a drink. <sighs> Here we go. I just have to say very briefly, I know you're not caught up, but I am in distress over Bo and Dre. On Blackish. No, a- I'm not caught up. Um, I'm too busy worrying about Philip and Elizabeth. So we are both worried about fictional television couples. In fact, I wrote about that today on the site that I don't really have the emotional bandwidth to care about the upcoming traumas on the affair until I find out what's happening with Philip and Elizabeth. I too wrote about my anxiety about Bo and Dre Johnson the anchors of Blackish, because Blackish is, has been um, in the midst of a four-episode will they or won't they divorce arc. And I know that they're saying it's four episodes, which means technically I should see a light at the end of this tunnel. And I don't know, presumably they're going to find a way back to each other. But I'm really, really upset. It's really upsetting to me. What season is this of Blackish now? Uh, four. Right. And are they renewed for next season? Probably, right? Yes. Although, as we've talked about, or maybe we've talked about it offline, Kenya Barris is not happy with ABC. No, no, it's true. <laughs> and so anything could happen. I know. I know. But I ask all this because these are all my lawyer lead up questions. Philip and Elizabeth as of this podcast, have four episodes left in the series. Okay. So give the viewers what they need and not what they want. Give the viewers what they need? Give them what they need and not what they want. This is something you taught me. So what is it that you need? Here's the thing. If you are not watching the Americans, I'm about to kind of burst your bubble and I don't really care because I've been preaching about it since I have had any kind of platform and you've had six years. Here's what's going on on the Americans. The show is set in the 80s and it is now 1987. And as we know, the Russian uh, empire crumbled It's all coming to a terrible end, and our people are on the wrong side on this show. So don't get me wrong. Everything is going to be brutal. I just don't know which way it's going to be brutal. Does that make sense? It's like a horror movie when you know somebody's going to die. Like, you know there's going to be bloodshed, 
and misery. I just don't know what brand of bloodshed and misery. And that is causing me a lot of anxiety. Well, I don't know that there's bloodshed and misery in... I mean, some of it is metaphorical. The Johnson's world. (laughs) There's certainly not a Cold War. But you either do think they'll come back together or you don't. And it seems like they took their time getting you here, right? It, it, they took their time getting me here. There's two more episodes left in this four-episode arc, which takes us right into sweeps, I guess, or close, or it's stirring. It's going to be, yeah, no, these, these two episodes upcoming are going to be May sweeps. And I get it. Like, I, I think that to me, of course, this is what you want. You want to build up the tension. It's just that cliffhangers aren't typically a sitcom thing. That's right. And it's, they're changing you know, the way they do things. Yeah. And I don't know if I like it. So I guess they're giving me what I need and not what I want. And good for you, Kenya. Once again, you're doing great at your job, but it doesn't mean that like it's been easy for me. Well, (laughs) no. And I mean, that's kind of the point, you know, they are going to make you work for it and make you work and worry to come back next week. It's also fascinating to me that we are talking about two shows that still air weekly, that we are still waiting for Wednesday nights. Mm -hmm. Wednesdays? Tuesdays. Tuesdays, Wednesdays to watch and and catch up every week and be breathless at the end. Yes. Last night I tossed a glass. It was plastic, but still I tossed a glass when the episode was over because I was so annoyed that it was over Mm -hmm. so quickly. And you watch it like it's not something you save, right? Like, you you watch it the night of. Well, it's funny that you say that because it's one of the few things that I watch with my husband that also is a, again, is a broadcast show. Yeah. It's not like a binge show. Yeah. Um, so we have gotten into some discussions, some like heated discussions over when to watch and over whether one of us has a job that does not allow us to be on the internet all day and avoid spoilers. Mm-hmm. And so it's really important. And I don't care if you're tired the next day. So there. Wow. Uh, yeah, that's, that's the kind of, uh, mood I'm in. I'm worried about the Johnsons. Well, I didn't come up with this beforehand because I didn't know where you were going to go there, but the whole thing of give them what they need and not what they want. We have, uh, you know, I heard it in writing rooms. I love it. You have adopted it. You love it. Um, but we've always kind of applied it only to fiction and, I'm not sure it only applies to fiction. I was going to save this, but when it comes to our first topic of the podcast, that was the overwhelming sentiment I had when we were reading about Rihanna and Vogue. Rihanna covers Vogue. This is just uh, days before the Met Gala. Yeah. Which is basically her moment once a year. Well, I mean, she has many moments, but we can agree that Rihanna owns the Met Gala now. Right? Yes, and um, I have more than once been seduced by Solange. I expect to be again. Uh, Solange is the the challenger if such a thing yes. exists. And they play totally different Met Gala games. Yes, they do. At the same time, it's universally acknowledged that we're waiting, all of us, for Rihanna to arrive. Sure. At the Met Gala. She is a co-chair this year. She's on the cover of Vogue. All of these things, though, because this is Rihanna's work, um, are converging at the same time. So not only is it the Met Gala, Vogue, 
Ocean's 8 is coming out. She's in that movie. And at the same time, she is choosing to launch her line of lingerie. Right. So, of course, we've seen this happen before. Artists and entertainers, they do this. That is the work schedule. They schedule everything to sort of, like, borrow off the momentum of the other thing. Yeah. Oh, no, absolutely. Like, it's a, you know, it's a textbook move. You know, a few weeks ago, we talked about sort of the pop star playbook. Uh, And if you want to talk about when people were first allowed to be multi-hyphenates, I don't even know where that, where we began with that. I want to say Martha Stewart of all things, but yeah, the idea of having one give you a ramp that gets you up the next hill to the next achievement uh, is now super standard. Absolutely. But of course, this Vogue piece isn't just fashion and isn't just for the Met Gala. This is a really, it's a really good starting point for us to get into all the elements of Rihanna's work because she's a recording artist. She is an icon. She is um, now a mega CEO of makeup, lingerie to come, and fashion. Right. The article is written by Chioma Nadi. Uh, I say this because I'm sure we're going to reference the writing and the writer several dozen times. And, you know, the first achievement, I guess, of the Vogue profile is it feels really intimate despite being the Vogue profile, like despite being, as you say, kind of a standard thing when somebody has ascended to this level that all this convergence happens at once. This doesn't feel like the ascendance of a a multi-billion dollar sort of tycoon. It feels very intimate. It does. And one of the things that struck me about this profile is that more and more we're seeing celebrities either keep it very neutral and they don't want to befriend the writer. They don't want to give up too much information. They just want to do enough and get the hell out. What's an example of that that you can think of? Oh, Kate McKinnon. Oh, I mean, Kate McKinnon was like, yeah, but that was like awful in its rigidity. Like that was, I don't even know if that was a choice by Kate McKinnon just or just all she could handle. But yes, fair enough. I'm thinking of a Michael B. Jordan profile circa Creed that uh, gave with one hand and took away with the other. And, you know, it was sort of like a little bit of an open door and then pulling it back again. Exactly. And... Typically, too, with superstars of Rihanna's stature, I mean, there are only, what, two or three people we can say are at Rihanna's level. Typically, they are hard to get. They keep themselves at arm's distance. Drake, for example, who right now is probably the top musician, if you can't streaming and all the records he's broken, Drake doesn't give interviews anymore. He did that feature in The Hollywood Reporter, and it was really the first one he did in a long, long time. He hasn't really spoken since Beyonce. I mean, we all know. Um, And so Rihanna could be up there in the, I want to stay removed. I want to stay separate. I want to be mysterious. But this is the opposite of that. I mean, she jumps on the couch and she and Chioma are giggling with each other um, on Tinder. Well, what we assume to be Tinder because she is using Chioma's phone and swiping and picking potential dates for Chioma. This is totally different from 
that vibe that we were just referencing. Well, one of the ways that it's different is that the whole piece is so transient. Uh, You know, they meet in Paris and then Rihanna's not feeling well, so they can't do what they do. So she goes on to London. And so uh, the writer goes with her, right? Like it's one of those things. It's all very flying around wherever. And there's overt references to, oh, I'm part of the family now, which, you know, seems warranted in a way that you would feel gross about it in a different uh, yeah. interview, maybe. Um, but you're right. There's no, there's none of that distance. Not even, and I'm, I'm not just talking about this magazine feature. I'm also talking about, I remember when Rihanna in September, S- September, 2017 launched Fenty Beauty and there was mass hysteria around the launch. As we read in this article, it sold out in, I think it made some kind of lots and lots of millions. It was some kind of record in only 40 days. It was sold out. And there were several events that she did uh, leading up to the launch and around the launch in different cities. Um, And usually when you have an event, a product launch for an event, celebrities will show up, they get their picture taken. There's There's a rope. They stay behind the rope. And we got a lot of footage of Rihanna. There's no ropes. And she was walking just not among the people, but she was grabbing makeup brushes and she was applying the makeup herself. She was saying to her fans, those were her fans who were there, this color is better on you. Try this shade. Here's a great highlighter. Do this with your brow. I mean, what is that expression? Getting your hands dirty. I mean, and she's Rihanna. Like it's, let's, can I just put that there? It's Rihanna. But, you know, I think that your point there about It's Rihanna is actually sort of the crux of the whole thing um, in two ways. Like, first of all, I just want to go back to where you said lots and lots of millions. I just think that's a phrase I'd like to commemorate (laughs) forever. But um, she has never been somebody who held herself at arm's length. She's been interesting. She's been mysterious, yes, but she's never been like, oh, you you can never know me. I am so unknowable. There's a lengthy discourse in this article, of course, about the VMAs and the thing and the Drake and pronouncement and whatever. Um, and she sort of says, oh, I was uncomfortable. But we knew this because she showed it on her face in the moment because this is what she does. And, you know, do you remember the plane tour? Yes. <laughs> yes. So was it, I mean... It was her seventh album, so right. it, was it was the 777. Right, the 777 yeah. tour. And it was like seven seven countries, seven continents? I don't know, yeah. seven continents in, in seven, seven days, days. Yeah, But more than seven journalists packed on a plane. It was kind of a disaster. They never saw Rihanna, but then sometimes they did. Yeah. It was all super ad hoc. Yes. And that spirit still seems to be here. Yeah. Like there are things that she does now that are a hell of a lot better produced than the 777 Uh tour, but that sort of make it up as you go along element really still seems to be here. But at the same time, a proper CEO. Yes, but like not, yes, a proper CEO in the sense that things are successful and that she cares about things a hundred percent. But, you know, we were talking again about the, the pop star playbook and Rihanna defies the pop star playbook on every level. 
she arrived being the person that she was. She kind of is that person now. She's arguably, arguably the musician whose transition to acting has been the most effortless, who seems to fit in that world without being like, ah, I don't belong here, uh, into whose efforts into like into fashion and into beauty are obvious. She, there's no sense of Rihanna growing and changing. I always feel that Rihanna is, has arrived fully formed and kind of arrived fully formed 10, 15 years ago. Maybe not upon the replay, but like, it's been a, it's been a while that she has been kind of this person who, when I say not a typical CEO, she seems to drive by instinct. She's not looking for a hole in the cosmetics business and then being like, I will exploit that hole. Right. She's only driving for what she wants and needs to provide because she wants to do it. And on that level, she wants to do it, but she's an authority. So I say this because as part of this Vogue feature, there is a 10-minute video tutorial of Rihanna applying her makeup. Mm -hmm. Did you watch it? Uh, Parts of it. I do not watch makeup tutorials. That is not my thing. I know it's a big like online movement, but can we just talk about this for a minute? Because here's why I don't watch them because you can't be doing anything else. Like my most millennial joy is to be watching TV while playing a stupid game on my phone Yeah, and you can listen and still know what's going on. If you're watching a makeup tutorial, you have to physically watch. You can't just listen. And I am one of those multitaskers too, not a millennial, but definitely a multitasker where I need to do three things at once. However, I just watched this tutorial. I'm again, I am. And of course it's because it's Rihanna, but there was an authority to her application and the way that she described her product and also the way she talked about her relationship to makeup. I mean, you talked about how she isn't somebody who identified a gap in the business, She just loves the business of makeup and she considers herself an authority on makeup. And so many of the things that she said in this makeup tutorial, which is just 10 minutes, I was able to relate to, even though I actually don't wear any make, like any of the makeup products that she was trying are not ever things that I wear. I don't contour. Or she says, it's also very cute. Like, I mean, say the word contour. Contour. So she says contour. (laughs) Anyway, so I don't do the contouring. I don't do any of that, the highlighting. And yet I was fascinated by Rihanna's love to all of these products and all of this like application technique. And her, again, I come back to that word, authoritative way of not only understanding her product, which of course she should, but understanding the technique and the business of it. She says this one thing and I was like, man, you're so right, which I don't remember hearing another celebrity saying. She says that she always has to do her own brows. She'll say, she said this. She's like, there are some things that I, on me, I can do on me better than any makeup artist. And that is, for her, it's her brows and the contouring on her nose. I could relate to that because for me, no one can do eyeliner like I can do my own eyeliner. Um, And these are things that are so recognizable to anybody who, if you just even wear lip gloss, she says something in this 10 minutes that is relatable to you. And yet, 
Maybe the reason that I balked at you saying she's a proper CEO is even though I hear you saying that she's authoritative, I am watching the tutorial on mute as you've been talking, not that you're not very compelling. And she's adorable. She is so entertaining. Yes. And she's having a blast. What is so clear, she's in like a schmancy hotel bathroom while she's doing this, which, you know, there's no set here. Like you can see a, a... air portable air conditioner behind her. Um, and she's having a ball. And maybe this is one of those things where Rihanna gets not less respected, but maybe less acknowledged for the CEO-ness of it. Because when I think of like a, a fashion CEO, you know who I actually think about is the Olsen twins. That sort of extremely purse-lipped, black-suited, you will take us seriously yeah. Um, sort of draconian vibe that they have. And she is having mm-hmm. such fun. She's clearly delighted to be doing her makeup. She's clearly having fun showing this off. And so I believe you that she's authoritative, but she's also clearly in her element. She is, I guess this is why I have trouble sometimes talking about the work because she is so singular. Mm-hmm. I find it hard to say, here's what you can emulate yeah. in Rihanna, except finding something that you legitimately, desperately love. Yes. I and, and I think that's a great point about what we talk about, which is work, and we have more and more been examining women at work. Does it look fun? Does it seem fun? When we, when we dedicated an hour or more to Bicella, did we talk about whether or not she was having fun. We talked about her, we talked about her concentration. We talked about all the things that she had to consider. But did we talk about whether or not Beyonce has fun? I I think about Madonna, for example, right? Everybody knows about Madonna's work ethic, her meticulous attention to detail. She's like, she reinvents herself all the time. I know. Reinvented. Or, (laughs) there you go. And I, I think about the conversations that we all have had over so many years about Madonna and how much of those conversations and articles have, that have been written about Madonna are related to how much fun she's having being Madonna. And as you just said, Rihanna is having fun. Always. Yes. Effortlessly. When she's in a see-through dress, she's having fun. When she's wearing an omelet dress at the at the Met Gala, she's having a ball. She's having a ball, like, being laughed at, being a meme, uh, you know, mocking her, her, I don't know, delivery in things. There's a level of enjoyment that seems super enviable and hard to emulate. Mm-hmm. This is one of the reasons that Rihanna is... So singular, even a throwaway quote in this clip, uh, even a throwaway quote in this article is about how, you know, she grew up in Barbados and it's paradise and she remembers that she has to not take it for granted, that not everybody grows up in a tropical paradise like that. Uh, But there's something about it, uh, you know, like the cheesiest phrase that I hate and that is tinged with all kinds of things and colonialism is like when people go on vacation. It's like, well, you have the island spirit now, um, which is gross. But like there is some sort of a a joie de vivre just to mix my 
my metaphors all over the place that she really, really has. I I agree with you. And I think that in a, like a big, and I think on a, and I think in a real world application sense, which, you know, I always try and work in every conversation we have is when women get to the level of CEO and when they're at the executive and when they're at the executive level, I have heard many times and I've read many articles about how they struggle with enjoying what they do and being able to show it. Mm-hmm. Because there's that face, right? Typically, when you are a woman and you're working in corporate Canada, corporate America, corporate Europe, you know that you're maybe one of the only, if not the only, you're surrounded by men. And so on top of the attention that you have to pay to your voice and your vocal fry and your wardrobe and having to prove your credentials and being mansplained to, you also have to manage the fact that when you have fun, sometimes when it's a woman, you look frivolous. Right. Um, I Right. You're absolutely right that those are the criticisms that are leveled at women. Uh, and I think when you bring up Beyonce or Madonna, I think they are more traditional in their enjoyment, let's say, because the fun, and I think Beyonce certainly has made this clear, the fun is in the satisfaction of the achievement. They said it couldn't be done. Watch me. Um, but this... But Rihanna is different in that you don't get the impression that her personality, which is her greatest selling point, is the result of blood, sweat, and tears. Uh, You get the impression that she was smart enough somewhere along the way to go, no, I'm just going to let me drive. I'm just going to let me and my instincts guide everything I do, which... I feel strange about because I think it does belie the work. And I think there has to be work when you have this many consistent successes. Again, minus the 777 tour. Yeah. Um, Which some would argue was a success. I mean, we're still talking about it. (laughs) We're still talking about it. But I had a totally different, unexpected reaction to this article and this piece because it As you point out, it details all her successes, not just uh, what has happened, but like the, I'm not Rihanna in any way, but I'm going to line up to buy that lingerie line and I will be at Ocean's 8 the minute it opens Uh and I can't wait to see uh, what happens on Monday night with the Met Gala. But the whole article gave me the vibe that this is not forever. The thing we often talk about with Beyonce is uh, a quote that I got in in my favorite book about how she's going for the long haul, how Beyonce is in it for the the run of things. You know, when Beyonce is 65, she will still be singing at uh, inaugurations or Kennedy Center honors or whatever it is. The way that the article was written, and perhaps this is what makes Rihanna different. There was that attitude of not having so much success and having done so much that she doesn't care that much about any one part of it as a collective. Absolutely. I just, I got the impression that not only could she walk away tomorrow, Mm -hmm. but that maybe tomorrow is coming. I was, I was startled 
to see that, but there are a few places where I was like, what? I don't know. I, I why are you saying this? Like it, it it was surprising to me. Well, it was yeah, there was a few sections I can pinpoint, I think, where that may have come up, which is, you know, she she talked about taking a break. She talked about going on vacation and coming back. She talked about the fact that she thinks about freezing her eggs. Yeah, and the fact that she said I used to feel guilty about taking personal time. Uh, that is something that it's one of those phrases. It's not unlike the woman at at CEO that you talk about, who's at the top of the, at the top of the tower and has to sort of watch her, watch her reactions. I feel like somebody's saying, oh, I need to take more personal time. Or even I used to feel guilty is a bit of a buzz phrase uh, that people don't always believe. But in this case, I believe that she no longer feels guilty, that yeah. she is, you know, I also think I never met someone who was worth it before, she says. There is an indication that our relationship is providing a shift. Not that I think she's governed by who she's dating, mm-hmm. but that maybe it's a different phase. What's crazy to me is that everything we have talked about in terms of Rihanna and the impact that she's made, she's still only turning 30 now. Yeah. We just watched her in her 20s. Yes. So, you know, it's entirely possible that there will be a Rihanna-free period. Um, but it, it that's making me more uh, discomfited than I than I would have anticipated. Yeah, I don't know. I see, I see it a little bit differently because I'll tell you, something grabbed me right off the top of this article, which was the times that Rihanna works. So she is somebody who feels creatively energized at night. Mm-hmm. So for her, like peak productivity is three, four or five, five o'clock in the morning. That's when she's in the studio and it talks about time is elastic. Now these are artists, these are performers. They can really typically do their shit at whatever time they want. But I remember, Duanna, when we were younger, huh? when we first met, we were like that too. Our best writing, when we when we get together and work, in fact, we'd fuck around all day and it was only until like literally midnight where we'd look at each other and be like, all right, let's do this. And I remember there were times when I I believed, I thought that I could only write at three o'clock in the morning. Yeah. I mean, I think that's true for a number of different reasons. When you are that age, there's more going on. Like mm-hmm. you can't have the the kind of isolation that you need to to write to get intimate with yourself in the page until three in the morning or for Rihanna to get intimate with herself and her work until that hour. I yeah. think that makes a lot of sense that there's not mm-hmm. so much interrupting your flow, you know, at that crazy hour. Well, but- I'll tell you, I, when I was reading that, I was like, all right, girl, but I'm not going to be reading a profile about you in five or six years and you're still going to be working at four o'clock in the morning. Correct. And so that is where I was, I was like, I wonder what that Rihanna is going to look like when that, when the new Rihanna, whoever she is going to be in five or six years, her most productive hours are going to be like 9am. Yeah. Oh, she will make it work. Absolutely. And when you're this powerful, this young, you can make anything work around you in whatever way you want. Um, When you talk about that, though, I think what's going to make the difference, which does come back to your point about her CEO-ness, Gary Ross, directed her in Ocean's 8, and says that she's fully invested in being herself. 
God, that's a great line. And it's just a throwaway in a larger quote. To be fully invested in being yourself, to never change your MO because of somebody else's opinion or fans or whoever she's reacting to. I mean, there's that to me is going to determine so much about her, but it could go any which way. We could fully come back to her, as you say, in five or six years and be right on board with Fenty investing or like, I don't know, like Fenty healthcare plans, like whatever it is, if she decides that it's worth our time, it's going to be worth our time because she's so authentic and because she's so unusual and so singular and yet somehow manages to be relatable to everybody as was your point in the makeup tutorial. Yeah, in the makeup tutorial I like I I encourage you if you haven't watched it yet and we will post it with the show notes. This video is like I said, I do not watch makeup tutorials and I needed more. But and also- by the end of it I was like maybe I should consider contouring. Like <laughs> that is what she's done for me. Also, just watch it on mute and see if you can't look away. She's so, so charming. And every time I say that, I sort of feel bad because I'm not trying to discount the work of somebody uh, by talking about their charm and their charisma and their energy and effervescence. But there is that X factor that makes her the Pied Piper that we follow wherever she goes. There is an X factor. And I I really appreciate the X factor of her that is tied up in emotion and connection. One of one of the quotes I really, really enjoyed here was when she was talking about her makeup line and she, she talks about people's reaction to it. So when the line was launched, the reviews were incredible. Like probably it was one of the most successful makeup launches in, in a long, long time. And one of the reasons for that was its inclusion. The 40 shades of foundation that she provided, which looking back now, it's been six months, but I wonder if any other makeup companies are like, why the fuck didn't we do that so long ago? Like, duh, right? Duh. Duh. Yeah. It seems impossible that there wasn't somebody else doing this and maximizing the financial return on what seems so obvious. And yet, and I truly believe this, I don't think this is just you know, that thing that celebrities do where they don't want to talk, especially female celebrities, they don't want to talk about strategy and business. I truly believe it. Her explanation for that was, I watched my ma- I watched my mother apply makeup and I was like, well, sure. I mean, people who look like my mother should be able to buy my product. I didn't expect people to have the emotional reaction to it that they did. And that right there was an understanding of your consumer. She realized that people would go to the store or look for it online and for the first time be able to match their skin tones to a product and how much that meant to them. And yet, she says, I didn't anticipate that. No. So again, it wasn't mercenary um, or you know, providing it just seemed to make sense, but the emotional reaction you know, kind of brings it full circle in, as you say, the connection she has to makeup and why it matters to people. And one more example of, you know, if you can see it, you can be it. Of Representation matters in every stretch and sense of the word. And yet 
she's doing it again with the lingerie line. And it was out of personal experience. That amazing see-through sequined outfit that she wore to accept her fashion icon award. She says, well, the one thing I didn't like about that look, which I don't know if anybody else picked up on because like that was just such a spectacular, memorable look is that she wore, quote, nude underwear underneath it, but it wasn't the right shade of nude because, of course, nude underwear only comes in certain shades of nude. So what she's doing with her lingerie line is offering nude underwear, but again, in probably 40 different shades, just like her foundation. And and to go back to the duh that we said a few minutes ago, well, duh, right? I, I don't know. Like, yeah, duh. I don't know. I don't know if we had some like phone a friend CEO here and you were like, hey, why haven't you been doing this all this time? But dude, it's probably duh on us too, because maybe we would be billionaires by now if like 10 years ago we had thought of, you know, launching an underwear line with all kinds of different nudes. Or is it one of those things where the people who have had this idea can't reach the people or can't make the brand matter to people the way Rihanna can, right? Because if you wear nude underwear that matches, let's like give the general population the benefit of the doubt and say that somebody came up with this before, right? But it didn't sell or it folded or whatever, because if you wear uh, Fenty lingerie, just like if you wear Fenty makeup, you also get to carry a piece of that badass around with you. That is incredibly important. It's not just that she's providing something that nobody else has or nobody else thought of. It's that people want it's that people want to be seen by her in particular, by Rihanna, and that that makes it uh, you know, a successful business and also, as you say, a, su- a successful emotional experience. So, heavenly bodies is the theme. How does Rihanna, I guess we shouldn't even bother predicting. What, speculating? Yeah. Yeah. But how does Rihanna heavenly body the Met Gala? Well, I think the answer is in, you're right, we cannot possibly speculate, but... um like you remember the year it was Comme des Garçons and yeah. people were way too literal about the theme, right? So you have to think of what's the most literal, like bland interpretation. Well, angel wings, crucifix. So then what's, yeah. What's the polar opposite of that? <laughs> it's what angels, uh, crucifixes, halos, papal gowns. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Beaded crowns. Yeah. So the opposite of that. Heavenly bodies. Like, is she going to come dressed as Satan? (laughs) Yeah. I I, I don't know. Is she like a human bugle? I have no idea what this could be. Or is it like a take on a gate? Like Uh a, you know, like an architectural something? I can't wait. I can't wait. Heavenly bodies, Rihanna is the co-chair, along with Donatella Versace and Amal Clooney. And of course, Anna Oh Wintour. my God. And it doesn't hurt to say we're going to stay up all night and obsess over it on all the places that we always obsess over things. Yes. And the Met Gala is an all-nighter at Lainey Gossip. So check out our coverage on Tuesday, May 
We'll have to find something to fight about. We always fight about Solange and who gets to write about Solange. You got her last year, so fuck you. I'm getting her this year. Well, on that note. So remember when you were a kid, like, trying to get into a skipping game and you're doing that thing where you kind of launch yourself, like, near it a whole bunch of times? I'm doing that sort of jump in thing right in front of the microphone. Uh, I feel like I've been wanting to do this uh, for our next topic for a long time. So Rachel McAdams and Rachel Weiss star in Disobedience, uh, which is out, I think, now and uh, based on a book that was published uh, a number of years ago. But it feels like it's been a conversation that has been almost here and almost here because did you see this movie at TIFF? I didn't see it. Joanna saw it. And it was in last September, in September 2017. And the whispers were really good. Uh, And then there was sort of talk and it wasn't – the release was not really clear. When was it going to come? It's finally coming. Uh, and I read the book in the meantime. Have you read the book yet? No. Oh, you have to read the book. And so uh, I've been waiting and waiting. And the press around it, of course, has been a little bit, you know, not a full-on press hit, which is one of the things we're going to talk about. But there is an interview between Rachel Weiss and uh, Rachel McAdams in Lenny Letter uh, that's quite interesting and quite illuminating. Uh, and did it make you want to read the book yet? Like, or are you going to wait for the movie? What's your plan? I, it made me want to see the movie. Mm-hmm. I wasn't curious about the book. I, you know, sorry. Um, but it made me want to see the movie. And it's not just the interview in Lenny Letter. I've, I've seen so many articles that I haven't read all the way through because I don't want to ruin my movie experience. But a lot of the articles have to do with the intimacy between the two lead actresses in the film. Like I'm looking at an article on Mike right now that says lesbian sex scenes can be problematic in disobedience. Rachel Weiss tried to avoid that. And there's a lot of this, a lot of the focus on the media coverage has been the lesbian love scene, the lesbian love scene, how they approached it, why it was important to them. Right. And we'll get there um, because it's covered in this article as well. And uh, Rachel Weiss was one of the producers, so that's sort of the angle there. The reason I keep asking about the book was because the most interesting thing to me when I read this article, knowing that uh, the Rachels were playing the two lead characters, Esty and Renit, I had transposed them in my mind. I thought that Rachel McAdams plays Renit, who is a uh, you know, a city-dwelling Londoner who's kind of uh, sophisticated and whatever, and that Rachel Weiss was playing Esty, uh, a sort of meek, shy uh, woman who's in a very traditional community. And I even read part of the information about the sex scene with those roles transposed. Okay. So it was quite surprising to me to see it the other way. Um First of all, it seems as though they're both playing against type. So Mm -hmm. that is fascinating to me. Like, are we, I guess what I'm getting at is it seems before we get to all the other things we, there are to talk about, and there are several. Yeah. Is the, is the, all the talk about the sex scene kind of overshadowing the rest of the work of the movie? I think so. Um, And... I think that's, 
I think that's just how our society goes, you know, whenever sex comes up, especially since it's two big name actors and they're doing a lesbian love scene. This is going to be the thing that, pardon my mixed me- metaphors, but cock blocks everything else. Right. Um, and it's, you know, I haven't seen the movie, so maybe it is the most memorable thing about it. We'll see. Uh, but it's the story itself is a is a lovely, nuanced love story that's surprising that takes place in a world we don't see on screen mm-hmm. very often. Uh, and so those are are really interesting angles that I wish were explored more. But of course, the elephant in the room is that maybe one of the reasons we're not seeing quite as much as we might have done is, one of those kind of crossover parts between work and not work, which is that Rachel McAdams, by all accounts, uh, rather secretly had a baby very, very recently. Uh-huh. And so she, you know, she was at uh, the premiere looking beautiful, but there haven't been, she's not doing a mommy column in People magazine. She did not make a joyful announcement to the press. Uh, and so... There's an element of, well, she's going to promote the movie and do what she's supposed to do, but it's not kind of the open blitz that you sometimes see. That, for example, we're seeing with Ocean's 8. Yeah. And, you know, and she, there was no blitz at all for Game Night, a movie that she was in in February. And we now know that she was either very, very pregnant or just giving birth. So she wasn't doing any publicity around that. Um, You could argue that that was an ensemble film. Jason Bateman, all kinds of other people were in the movie. They could carry it. This required her to be around. Um, And so she's doing a lot more press in terms of these interviews. And these are a lot of these interviews or this interview that she did is is written, or at least you could do it over the phone. She doesn't actually have to show up in person. I think they do actually say here that they talked over the phone here. Yeah. So, you know, there are lots of things to talk about. Um, And there's a... Terrible segue to be made about sex and babies somewhere in here, but I just won't make it. Uh, but I'm I'm interested in this because uh, I think what is happening to this very, very successful, like, powerful actress, Rachel McAdams, is by all accounts an, an A-list name. We would call her an A-list name, yes? Yeah, I would I would call her A-list, right. for sure. I don't know if A-plus, like, there's another, there's definitely another level above her. Sure. But yes, right. A-list. Um. But, you know, there's, this is the kind of thing where you go, well, look at this. So now this is a woman who had these films, made them whenever. Sometimes films are made and they come out six months later. Mm -hmm. Sometimes they're made four years before and they don't get released or distributed until whatever time. Uh, And so I am really caught in the two worlds of here's a woman who's just making like, you know, life decisions and wants to spend time with her family and enjoy what's happening in that part of it and the sort of obligations of work. And to be really specific, most stars, certainly of her caliber and above and some below, are contractually obligated to participate in press, to promote the film. That's considered to be part of your compensation. Uh, And so I'm just really interested in the struggles that she may or may not be having Uh, But just the the ask to have somebody who is so 
recently having given birth be, you know, out there in the, in the gowns and, and in the full makeup and spending the four and five hours, uh, to promote the film. Is it tough break and that's part of the job or is it kind of nuts or somewhere in the middle? Well, if we're going to sort of have that general question be asked, how about having to give birth and then literally three hours later, stepping outside the hospital, holding your baby while the world media takes your picture. I mean, yeah, yes. But um, I guess to my mind, the difference there with uh, with Kate Middleton, who will forever be Kate Middleton despite <laughs> her royal titles, is that that three hours later um, or 12 hours or whatever, I'm sure they can fudge the timeline if they want to, uh, but that's her only obligation. Mm-hmm. That she does that one time for three and a half hours and then she gets into the car and they buckle him in properly because they didn't when it was George. And I assume she like slices off her spanks with an exacto knife and then like yeah. she can go and lie down for four weeks. But I mean, even still, I'm picturing it and this was a conversation when it happened because she stepped out and there were those pictures is like, okay, it's your third. I get it. It's not routine, but it's not the first, you know what to expect more or less. So you're, you push the baby out, baby's crying, you're sweaty. (laughs) You've just maybe yelled. She doesn't yell. I suppose she, you know, breathed. Fun fact, I did not yell. (laughs) Okay. So she breathed heavily, Mm -hmm. um, groaned maybe a couple times. Maybe. Okay. And then someone, someone basically within the hour shows up and is like sponging her face blowing out her hair, sticking a tube of mascara at her, at her eyes. Um, you know, it's messy. I'm assuming the whole process. So wiping, you have to wipe yourself up, put the spanks on as you met, met or. Okay. All right. Let's just like, back that's it up here. a lot, but it's not really here. Uh, look, every woman is different. Every experience is different. Um, for, I can only speak for me, for many women, I am told, uh, myself included, there's a huge uh, hormone rush of like feeling like a superhero, like you can do anything. So, you know, she may not want to do that. And I'm sure that had it been, I don't think there's any ticking clock on when you have to show that baby, right? So had it been 12 hours after the birth or 18 hours or whatever, I'm sure they call the palace and say, okay, she's having her, you know, her blowout and her massage. Now you can announce that the child was born and then we'll see you in another five or six hours or whatever. It can be managed a little bit. Um, But again, that's as preposterous as that is. It's a one-time thing. What I'm curious about, I guess in a different way, is the sort of, you know, the return to work. Mm -hmm. And look, lest we speak out of turn, uh, I know that we are talking to a lot of listeners in the U.S. uh, with all kinds of jobs where six weeks of maternity leave is standard, uh, where 12 weeks is considered luxurious. Yeah. Uh, Sometimes Canadians forget because there is a longer maternity leave that is generally accepted here that there are a lot of places where people are going back to work um, very shortly after giving birth and balancing like baby life at home. But I guess my bigger point when you bring up Kate Middleton uh, is that you're actually tireder later in the game. 
when the point where Rachel McAdams is stepping out and having to be beautiful and slim and gorgeous and, you know, wear a see-through dress so everybody knows you're not fat. Sorry, but like the thought comes to mind, um, is usually at the most tired point, at the most ridiculous point. And before you email me and say, she has nurses, she has like people around the clock, she has whatever. I'm sure she does. It's still exhausting and a lot. Um, And I guess the question is just, do you, if it was you, do you sort of tap out of as much as you can? Mm -hmm. Or do you throw yourself back in to be like, look, everybody, I'm here. I can still do it. I'm still me. It's okay. It's a lot of, it's a weird pressure question. Yeah. And I think that speaks to this project in particular. Because, Mm. you know, we've talked about the care that both of them put into not just the love scene, but the whole story. It sounds like it is one of those a small story, right? As you said, this is a setting that we don't normally see, an environment, a people that we don't hear stories about. Clearly going into this then, when they both took on the project, this is something of larger import than normal. They were like, we get the chance to tell this story, a story that not many people get to tell. We are both in a position to be able to tell it. Probably the financing came through Um, and all the, you know, you hear about it all the time, right? You know, the financing is going to come through if this name is attached, this name is attached. And so given the significance of that kind of work, you put into something many months ago before you found out you were pregnant, probably years ago. Exactly. But finally the time has come to get it out there and to make sure that people see it. And it has been very well received. I'm looking at Rotten Tomatoes right now, 93% approval rating. That's great. Um, I think that that's, I, I hope that we get to a point where that's the luxury that women have after they have their babies, that you want to take the time, you take the time. But if there is that one thing, the one thing you come back for, the one thing that like, you know, you will get into the see-through dress for and leave the child with the nanny and the stories I hear is that you're leaking halfway through your interview or whatever is for a movie and a project like this, where you you get back to work to honor the work. What I really like about that is that it also uh, implies if you're lucky enough to be as busy as Rachel McAdams or just to have projects bump up against each other the way they sometimes do. You know, we talked about Rihanna doing it in a real deliberate way, but sometimes it's just happenstance uh, that you pick and choose, right? Yeah. That to your point, Games Night isn't going to live or die uh, based on whether Rachel McAdams sits in 14 hours worth of junket interviews. But having that kind of cushion allows her to give what she needs to give for the promotion of disobedience, uh, which, you know, is is a really interesting idea. And it's interesting to talk about how, say you don't want to do so much. Say you're Rachel Vice, and I say, hey, I'm not going to be around as much as I thought but I really care. Uh, I'm also interested in how they get creative about what they do. Having the interview, as you say, the print interviews, the one in Mike, the interview in Lenny Letter, uh, is an unusual kind of promotion strategy that lets everybody have the best of both worlds. It's, It's a creative support thing that I appreciate. But there is, yeah, to me, this is a bigger question, even though I won't have to confront it myself because I am not a parent and won't be a parent. This is an ongoing 
an ongoing no solution or so far a viable solution has not been met yet, at least on a big scale, of women out there at work and the complication, the stress of wanting to maintain a certain level of work while fulfilling your dream to be a parent, to be a mother. It is a specific concern that is gendered. It is hugely gendered because, you know, as you know, I think you posted the other day uh, something about Ryan Reynolds and how great he is on Twitter. uh, And they're all jokes about how much he hates being a parent. Yeah. Try doing that and being a woman. Mm -hmm. Try it. Even if you're a funny person, even if you've been a comedian, no dice. Try saying that your kid is at home with 103 fever in an interview, which I've seen men do. Yeah. Uh, And again, obviously we know that Hollywood celebrities do not have it the toughest where parenting is concerned, but they do sometimes have it the most scrutinized or the most publicly referenceable. Uh, Yeah, it is a, it is, as you say, kind of an unsolvable question. Uh, And I'm heartened, even if it's only a professional pretense, at, you know, Rachel Weiss, the producer, saying, hey, Rachel McAdams, uh, you're my partner in this, so I will work with you. I will find mm-hmm. ways around this with you to make this work, and what can we do? And fine, so we won't go on, like, watch what happens live. We'll do something else. And, you know, in Canada here, our government, at the latest budget reveal… I'd say it reveal like it's some sort of like it was, though. there was a bit of theatrical. It was like in February and the federal budget included a five week incentive for new dads to take parental leave. And so there were a lot of discussions in our country around whether or not this is the solution, whether or not this would help. And quite a few debates, a couple of them I participated in. Number one, because I, 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 I wanted to understand exactly how this would, because this was, the, the goal of it was to create more gender equality, right? The minister said, our government is trying to be, and I think is quite successful at being a feminist government. Um, and he stressed that, and this is our minister of families, Jean-Yves Duclos, he said, uh, when we achieve When we have a greater equality of parental leave and parental activities, we also are able to achieve a greater equality of life and work outcomes. And I thought, you know, in trying to understand this story a couple months ago and uh, polling, you know, casually polling the people I know, there seemed to be mixed feeling and mixed reaction to whether or not this was a long-term solution. Because for many parents, no, I will clarify, for many working mothers, at the beginning or when the child is an infant, it's fine. It's later when you have to go back to work. What are the incentives that are in place in the workplace for when the child is two, three years old and you have to leave at five o'clock and there is a deadline? All of those things I don't know if they're going to be addressed by this five-week incentive. Um, So we are still socially in many countries exploring different ways to make it work. In Hollywood, yes. I know you issued the caveat earlier in our conversation. Like they have the resources to do that. For regular people who work in corporate jobs or in other kinds of jobs, that is a challenge. 
But even in Hollywood again, or outside of Hollywood, uh, if you're not Rachel McAdams or anywhere on the call it A minus list yeah. and up, there's nobody moving schedules around for you. If this is a, you know, uh, I hate to keep ranking people, but if this is a lower ranked actress who was excited to be brought along on the on the junket uh, for her first time and then, you know, and doesn't have a nanny and is suffering through like running back and forth to pump or whatever, or if you are the person who whose schedule gets pushed, you know, seven, eight hours and suddenly you're shooting until four in the morning and, oh God, the nanny has to go home and what do I do? Um, there aren't strictures in place. Everybody is just kind of figuring it out alone. And it's one of the reasons I wanted to have this conversation, not because we're solving anything really, and not because somebody who makes millions of dollars per picture is the person to emulate, uh, but just to talk about the fact that the only thing that consistently helps, I think, is having allies, both having allies, men, women, and otherwise, who are actively invested in making it work with the people who are parents uh, because ultimately it benefits everybody, because you get the person you want to work with, because that person doesn't burn out because, yes, the 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 school always calls the woman when the kid falls on the ground, regardless of who's listed on the form. Um, it's one of these things where I think there actually maybe is less of a gap in from the real world to Hollywood life because they don't have it any more figured out than we do with all the resources in the world. The thing is, I don't think she'll ever talk about it. Do you? Her, no. That's not Rachel McAdams' brand. Yeah. And even that's kind of nuts. Mm-hmm. I mean... Just speculation, my prediction, given what we know of her, we didn't even know she was, well, I mean, pregnant until very, very late. Like, nobody knows if it's a boy, if it's a girl, what the name is, when she had the baby, all of that. Um, She hasn't talked about it. She's, I think, alluded to it obliquely in the interviews for this film. But, yeah, there hasn't been any interest in engaging any kind of discussion ever about what happens in your personal life. Now, that may change. I'd be interested in hearing what she has to say about it, for sure. But you know what? I'd also be interested in hearing what, like, dudes have to say about it. Because for the celebrities who do talk about this, they are women. Right, because it's not an issue for the men. Yeah. Because the men who have children, you know, on a good day they have, it's like, having a, a, a pizza and on bad days, it's like having an ear infection. Like it's just not that big a seismic shift mm-hmm. in their work and in their careers. I'm Sandra and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for, but you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Okay, so... 
probably the request we received the most this week to cover on Show Your Work is Busy Phillips. Busy Phillips, this week it was announced that E! has given her her own talk show called Busy Tonight. Um, the description was pretty vague, right? Did you find it vague? Yeah, it was a talk show. Yeah. It's like she'll talk to people. Yeah. Michelle Williams is going to be the first guest. Uh, that wasn't confirmed, but I mean, yeah, no, again, I, duh. I, yes. Right? Um, but they mentioned her Instagram and how great she is on our Instagram, her Instagram and how they're going to make the talk show some form of uh, a connection to the connection that people get from her on Instagram. Like that's what really they're tapping into. Right. Right. And, uh, I have to say after we talked about contour and contour, uh-huh. um, I love that, uh, I thought of the title as busy tonight. Uh, you know, like, like I'm busy. Uh, don't, yeah. don't call me, uh, which I love a pun. Um, but one of the things that's interesting about that and that people love from her Instagram uh, is she's the polar opposite of our previous topic, right? Busy Phillips, uh, who was an actress and, you know, you watched her in Dawson's Creek and, and Freaks and Geeks and whatnot, created this whole brand on her Instagram and with her daughters and sort of of a hilariously messy mom life. Like it's yeah. very, very real. So it makes sense to me that, that this is something people are really excited about. It does. I was interested in this because... As mentioned, it was her Instagram energy and flow and charisma that really made people think, okay, this could be a talk show. But that's Instagram. That is new media. A talk show for all intents and purposes is traditional media, older media. Right. So you're a producer or you are a producer in addition to plus, plus, plus. Well, yeah, sure. You know how to make TV mm-hmm. or you have made TV. How then would you produce this? What are the elements that you take from Instagram and translate into the work of conventional TV? So the hard part is the spontaneity, right? Um, the thing about Instagram that's so great is that it's self-directed. Whoever it is turns it on when they have something to say. Yeah. And that is... 19 times in an hour yeah. or four times in a week or whatever you decide. Um, coming up with that spontaneity five times a week is something that talk show hosts and SNL writers and everybody under the sun has talked about for decades. The The difficulty of finding that sort of divine inspiration on a schedule. Uh, so, you know, I wonder what they will do in terms of surprising her. Uh, in terms of having unexpected moments happen. Uh, Ellen does a good job of this on the show in that the the segments are always surprising for the viewer, but they're rarely surprising for Ellen. Uh, I don't know if she ever edicted, I don't know if she ever made an edict like Oprah, like I don't like surprises, but that's not what's happening. For a late night show, you want a little more looseness and mm-hmm. play. Also, I would immediately say no desk. However, then you say no desk, and then who does that make you think of? Oprah. Sure. But late night? Oh, Chelsea? Chelsea. I never watched it. I Is mean, this the Netflix one? No, even the original. Okay. Um, I think that that would be the caution, right? Right. Would be you don't want to be Chelsea again. Yeah. 
Um, not because I think they bear any real resemblance, but because even though, as you say, like Busy Phillips is, you know, Instagram is new media and mm-hmm. this is traditional media. Busy Phillips is an actress first. Instagram is kind of her second chapter. Yeah. Uh, and so I think people compare people too easily. And if you're kind of a sassy, funny woman who's got long blonde hair, I think it would be too easy to say, oh yeah, it reminds me of when Chelsea Handler did blah, blah, blah. Right. Uh, You know, we'll deal with the fact that we don't have a non-blonde female late night host another time. Maybe what you do is, and like, call me crazy, but maybe it's Bill Maher style. Like, maybe it's sort of a a, a V-shaped table and and busy kind of moderating debates between people, kind of getting them to mix it up a little bit, uh, to have more of those free moments. But I also don't want her to be, you know, Seth Myers is funny or, or I'm, that's a pause that we should leave in. Yes. Yeah, Cause I'm just struggling to think of who else is funny. No, that's not true. Trevor Noah is funny, but he's his own thing. Uh, Seth Myers is funny or Jimmy Kimmel is funny, but the idea of a talk show is that the, the guest is the star a little bit, yeah. right? That they're coming out to do their star bit. And you want to keep busy the focus. Yeah. So maybe it's a different format every day. Mm -hmm. I'm very curious. What would you do? Well, this is where I've, like, I've been thinking about it all week because, you know, I agree with the people who wrote to us and they were like, most of them were like, fuck yeah, a win for busy, which we all want. So I'm not here to be like, hmm, this sucks. Like, this is great. I'm so great that this Instagram thing, I mean, people have been writing about Busy Phillips on Instagram for like a year now, mm-hmm. a New Yorker profile, yeah. right? There's that New Yorker profile was great. Recently there was the cut. Um, and it's wonderful for her. That said, the moment you get past that initial excitement is when you have to start picturing it. So do I want to see a busy monologue, right? I, I don't know. I, I don't have an answer to that. One of the things I will say about Busy's Instagram and specifically Busy's strongest area is Insta stories is that they're not overly produced. Certainly there is the, you know, the, the goal of any good Insta story is that behind the scenes there is, it is produced, but it can't seem produced, right? Sorry, is this all just a setup <laughs> to talk to me about Insta stories? No, it's we not. Were offline. <laughs> And I was grumping about Insta stories and now here we are. Right. So the goal of Insta stories obviously is to make it feel like it just happened in the moment and hers definitely do. So to your point, it's the spontaneity. It's also like a lot of her Insta stories are really shitty angles. That's another reason why it feels quote unproduced because she'll be talking to you and I can literally count her nose hairs. Um, And she doesn't really give a shit if uh, she's doing a workout segment and it's really not the best angle to take the workout from. So there's that. Right. I don't want that to go away. And automatically, anytime you're dealing with conventional television, there's production value. You know, their gear is such that it's going to be hard to like give you a fuzzy shot or a weird angle. Well, maybe. Maybe you're right. But I just realized as we were, as we were talking, um, that I have a favorite genre of talk show, maybe a favorite subgenre of talk show. Um, and it's, uh, it's the mobile talk show. 
Like, I'm a huge fan of James Corden and Carpool Karaoke. Right. That's a mobile talk show. Yes. Right? And, you know, it looks nice, yes, but there's it looks like the inside of a car, which yes. it is. And the driving is real, and it's really funny. Um, then I started thinking about comedians in cars with coffee. Mm-hmm. And uh, my favorite episode, of course, is the Obama episode. And uh, when they go for coffee in the White House, because Obama can't leave the White House. Yeah. It's so shitty. They like pour shitty coffee out of a Mr. Coffee and the angles are terrible and the lighting is awful. Um, So maybe we are being too literal about the idea of a talk show necessarily being live five nights a week or four nights a week and requiring a studio audience. That's been implied in everything you and I are saying, but I don't think it needs to be the case, right? Um, if if maybe they set it up in her real living room mm-hmm. and they come and do things and she says, sorry, the kids are whining. I got to go and re-put yeah. them to bed again. I don't know. I don't know either. I'm, listen, this is not a knock. Like this no, is no. just questioning, like not questioning even, just wondering how it's going to be. Because the other element is if this talk show is themed around Busy's Instagram connection, then what will Busy have left for Instagram? Well, that is a legitimate concern because that will become about the work Uh and, you know, at work. And look, people do very amusing Instagrams at work. And even when I'm tired of seeing like, I don't know, their dog in a craft service or something, it, uh, you know, people find a way. But is it going to be the same? It may not. It may not. And... So all of these questions I'm looking forward to, but I think that beyond the initial excitement again of busy gets busy tonight, busy's talk show, there is a lot more thinking to be had. Of course, they are doing all the thinking, but these are all the things that we've been thinking about. So let us know what your iteration of busy tonight, you imagine it to be, if you've even started imagining it. And given all these potential obstacles that we've just raised, um, let us know. And awesomenesses. And awesomenesses. Let us know what you think. Busy, of course, has found a secondary career or kind of found new outlets. Yeah, like uh, you would not only describe her as an actress anymore. That's right. Right? And that's kind of been better for her. I've been realizing as we've been talking that the kind of theme for tonight's episode is like the challenge of being real in 2018, like how hard it is to hang on to it, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, the second career thing is interesting because it seems much more her than Audrey or Kim Kelly ever was. And that's where we find Leslie Jones. Of all people. Of all people. We are connecting Leslie Jones and Busy Phillips. But the reason why we're thinking about Leslie Jones is because, well, in the immediate You saw her at the Time 100. Yep. She was there to honor Christian Siriano. Mm -hmm. Uh, She was on the Time 100 last year, and she wrote the piece for Christian Siriano this year. And, of course, Leslie Jones, Saturday Night Live. Um, She's a comic, but she has been able to parlay her Leslie-ness, just like Busy has been able to parlay her busyness, into... Other, I don't know, what do you call them? Outlets, activities, yeah, opportunities? Yeah, like less expected sort of, yeah, venues, let's say. Yeah. Right? 
Um, what's, what was so interesting about it, about that, the Time 100 event, uh, was that she was kind of hailed as having a fashion icon moment. She was doing an homage to Grace Jones. She looked amazing. And that's not a box that we put Leslie Jones in usually, right? You're like, oh, she's hilarious. She's so funny. She whatever. Uh, if you heard that Lauren Michaels was executive producing some movie of hers, you'd be like, oh, yeah, of course. Uh, but you don't usually say, oh, Saturday Night Live star and fashion icon, which was an interesting place for her to go. And of course, because this is your world, you reminded me that she was uh, an, an Olympics commentator this year, which is possibly the least likely place to find a comedian. You're right. And there is some irony to the fashion icon thing, too, because remember, during the Ghostbusters press tour, she was very candid about the fact that she couldn't find things to wear uh-huh. and that no designers were sending her anything or lending her anything. And it was Christian Siriano who stepped up and said, I will dress you. And Christian Siriano has done that for a number of people. Yes. Uh, with Almost uniformly excellent results. Excellent. Made a name for himself that he never had before that. Yeah. And all of a sudden, all these women were wearing gorgeous gowns to the Emmys, uh, to the Oscars, because they were beautiful and because he was happy to make them at a time when some people weren't. So Leslie Jones steps out in this Grace Jones homage. It's a white blazer dress. She did the hair. She had the sunglasses on. She looked banging. Black pumps, legs up to here. So good. And so we're adding another box to the Leslie Jones repertoire in addition to, yes, sports event commentator. And I mean, (laughs) you know, it's, I guess it's always about surprising people. And maybe this is something Busy takes along with her too, right? Because with all my carping about Instagram stories, Leslie's are the ones that I watch uh, because I find them really compelling, even though they're almost uniformly of her working out in the gym Mm -hmm. or talking about how she shouldn't have eaten what she did last night because now she's sweating it out in the gym. Right. Um, I hate the gym and I grumble all the way through it. And that is my modus operandi. I find it very relatable. And she's showing us a different angle of the work, you know, to, to be honest about the work that goes in, not just because of fashion or fitting into things or whatever, but because if you are keeping up a schedule, like any of these people that we're talking about, you have to be in peak physical condition or you're going to get sick and you're going to slow things down. Mm -hmm. And ultimately it always comes back to the production schedule, right? You don't want to be the person who fucks production um, by getting sick or being out for three days. You have to be in peak physical shape. Um, But it introduces a more a more earnest side of her. And I think that was sort of what people loved about the Olympic stuff too, right? She, as funny as she is, everything she was saying at her TV screen, which ultimately became about uh, what she said at the Olympics, was 100% authentic. Well, and that that's how it happened. I mean, she just loved watching the Olympics. NBC wasn't at the beginning of the games in Rio, Um, which is when it started in 2016, NBC wasn't like, oh, we're going to bring Leslie Jones over. It just so happened that she was like trending on Twitter because she was so hilariously watching these events and giving her honest and candid commentary. And three or four days into it, NBC was like, 
shit, we're onto something here. Get on a plane and come here. And then the next Olympics, the Winter Olympics in Pyeongchang, they were like, well, of course we have to have Leslie. And I wonder, like, whatever, if NBC is covering the World Cup this summer, if they're going to fucking send her to, it's in Russia. So maybe not. Um, <laughs> so, Russia again? Sochi Olympics. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So that's what you're thinking, right? 2014? Yeah. And then, yes, Russia. Listen, FIFA and the IOC are like the most corrupt organizations. So. I wasn't sure if that was on or off. Yeah. <laughs> um, anyway. Uh, so, yes. Sochi again. But, yeah. I And so now, it, whenever there's an NBC-related like shit, I I wonder what major golf tournament NBC has. I think NBC has the U.S. Open, maybe. Like imagine her, like when everybody's fucking quiet and Tiger Woods is lining up his putt, she's like <laughs> over on the green or something, being like, "Tiger, get it! Don't you fuck it up!" Like, <laughs> <laughs> so now I'm thinking major NBC sports events. Does Leslie Jones have to be there? Which is. Listen, a great, again, a, a, a way that she has parlayed social media spontaneity into something like more than, more than temporary. But again, in both cases, it's about somebody who was already being themselves. Yes. Who was authentically leaning into something they did to amuse themselves and, you know, to interact with people on Twitter or whatnot, uh, and who had like immense joy from it that turned into a thing. Uh, Lin-Manuel Miranda, I finally listened to that West Wing Weekly podcast, and he talked about how sort of fantasy casting a West Wing musical on Twitter, A, got him engaged with Twitter, and B, you know, in a backhanded kind of way is part of what inspired Hamilton. But it's something that nerd would have been doing anyway. Yeah. And Leslie Jones would have been nerding out over the Olympics, whether anybody was watching or not. Uh, I really love this because to to borrow your phrase and talk about a real world application, mm-hmm. um, if you are searching for your second chapter, your fourth chapter, your whatever, it is always going to resonate harder and closer if it is something that belongs to you authentically and never going to work if you're like, well, how can I, what is an angle I can take? Uh, as opposed to just being like, here's all the shit you didn't know about I don't know, yarn. Well, fuck, that's how I started. I know. This is why I get mad at you when you didn't love the phrase, you do you. Because what is now a, you know, a full-time business and gossip empire that's been running for 15 years started as you do you and not listening to people who thought that it was silly or, or frivolous or whatever. You have to lean into something that only you care about because they will always surprise you how many other people care about it. So if you're out there, <laughs> you do you. That's my, that's my philosophy. I'm not mad at it. And finally, the second most popular topic that many of you emailed and tweeted at us about was the news that Lupita Nyong'o um, booked not just one, but two spy movies this week. And we got this message from Melissa. Um, she sent us a message uh, with a tweet from Rachel Handler's uh, uh, Twitter. And Rachel Handler made the observation that 
The cool fictional woman job used to be, quote, journalist. It is now, quote, cold-blooded assassin, making adjustments accordingly. So per Melissa, here's Melissa's message. I think this tweet was made before the news of Lupita Nyong'o in The Killer came out. Do you have theories as to why there are so many lady assassin characters now? Maybe there aren't major movie stars who are male, so it seems like less of a gamble to plop a female as a credible action star. In a few years, it seems inevitable that there are going to be more and more films about journalism, so maybe we'll see roles for both female assassins and journalists. And sorry, the film I was talking to before um, with Jessica Chastain will also star Marianne Cotillard, uh, Lupita Nyong'o, and Penelope Cruz, and Fan Bing Bing. So um, this is on the heels of Red Sparrow, uh, Atomic Blonde last year. There's they're working. Marvel is working on a Black Widow film. Um, so yeah, this there seems to be a moment here of of the lady assassin, as Melissa wrote in her her email. Right, and I liked that that somebody uh, in that Twitter thread also referenced Killing Eve. You know, it's not just films, uh, but in television as well. Sort of a trend that's building. Uh, so what did you think about this beyond? booking up your calendar because I know you you were like here's this release date I will go to this movie at this time (laughs) I will book my seat for this movie at that time well first and foremost I'm really really excited about the killer John Woo and Lupita this is a classic film of Hong Kong cinema starring one of our most legendary if most legendary actors Chow Yun-Fat and remaking it with a woman John Wick styles, because let's, without John Woo films, I don't think that there would be John Wick. So this is getting like a little bit too in-depth into that area, but remaking it and reimagining it as a woman, I love it. I'm so, and I think with Lupita, it's amazing. Now, having said that, then there's like this whole spy genre and yeah, like Spies have always been dudes, Bond, whoever else, name them all, Golden Circle, whatever. I do like it. There is, though, a tendency for us to want to veer so much in the extreme that we've, we release the feminine. Yes. So, yes, I 100% want to see women killing and being spies and being ruthless. I, I love that. I just don't want us to go so far into that area um, and and somehow have that diminish the softness too. Yeah, and the softness in all kinds of characters, yeah. right? Women and men. Melissa uh, wrote a really astute email, but the one part I don't agree with was when she asked whether there weren't male movie stars and so that's why they were giving these opportunities to women. Uh, I'm slightly more cynical about this. I think that there are male movie stars at all times waiting in the wings. Uh, you are not wrong, Melissa, that like the the Ben Afflecks and Matt Damons and I don't know, Jeremy Renners who might've gotten these roles are aging, but I'm a lot more cynical and think that studio bosses are like, well, women are like a thing now and the box office is doing really well and, and girls trip and hidden figures. So let's just put them into the movies we already have. This happens more often than you might expect Mm -hmm. that a movie is sitting on the shelf or a studio owns it. Uh, I don't know what the case was with the killer, but 
then they're like, well, let's just see if we can, can we make it a woman? Let's make it a woman. And all mm-hmm. of a sudden they are huge innovators. Right. Uh, so I get a little cynical about that. And the other part of that is that, to your point, losing the feminine, it's not enough just to change the name of a character uh, and have it be, you know, obviously women can be killers. Women can be all kinds of things. But I kind of worry that if a male studio boss or a male writer or director or whoever writes the movie thinks of a badass woman, the only image that comes to mind for them is a woman with a gun. Like, oh, she's just, she's totally like a dude. She doesn't even like The Bachelor and she totally doesn't like cry at brunch or whatever the stereotype is. I'm being an asshole, but, you know, I, I worry that they think they can't make thrilling, enticing pictures about women who are women. And I think that was your point that you were kind of uh, making as well, that some of these, not all, uh, maybe imply somebody who happens to be a woman, Mm -hmm. like it's a gender bending trick as opposed to a story about a woman because it's a story about a woman. Yes. And I think about this because we have over the course of this season at times talked about rom-coms. Mm-hmm. And there has been an ongoing conversation about the lack of rom-coms, that rom-coms don't happen anymore. And so what I'm saying is not that the woman spy movie shouldn't exist. I'm all for having lots of woman spy movies, but we should ha- be able to have lots of woman spy movies and lots of rom-coms and lots of all those things. Like in one year, for example, I don't know, name an actor. Like Channing Tatum can be a superhero, but then he can do a drama and then he can do a Western and then he can do something else. This is what I mean about true equality. Like it almost seems to be feast or famine. Oh, you want strong women? We'll only give you quote unquote strong woman, the assassin woman. But that's not what we're saying here. It should be imagine it all. Give us the spectrum. The spectrum. So that is types of films that, uh, yeah, that cover all of these things, uh, women across the spectrum, and that, you know, a movie about a woman is not the same as a movie about a man with the genders removed. God fucking forbid they make the character have a name that isn't a a male nickname for a female name. Yeah. You know, like your assassin is called Georgie or Sam or something. Yeah. I'm going to punch somebody, Alex. Yeah. Like it can be both and it can be more nuanced. It can. And I'm thinking about this, this is especially top of mind because on the social this week, uh, we had a writer come in. Her name is uh, Rachel Geiza and she's written a book. The book is called Boys, What It Means to Become a Man. And The point of this book is to expand the narrative and the definition of masculinity. Typically, traditionally, there's been really one version, right? The killer spy, unfeeling, unemotional, tough, you know. James Bond. Exactly. And that has done a disservice to men and women because it has discouraged men from being sensitive, being vulnerable. Um... And second-tiered those men who are that, right? That's right. Who identify that way. That's right. Well, you're not really a man. That's right. 
And what Rachel said was, we encourage women to adopt the qualities of men. Be strong. Be uh, tough. Be whatever. Ruthless. Exactly. But not too ruthless in case somebody sees you. And again, which I say, great. I do want to see women in real life and in fiction. Well, maybe I don't want to meet a ruthless woman, but I do, because but they do exist. And yeah. I do want them to be represented in storytelling. Yes, absolutely. That said, the opposite is not true. So if we associate those attributes, toughness, ruthlessness, strength with men, the attributes, and I'm using air quotes because I'm not saying only women can be these things, but these are words typically associated with women. Of course, we're talking yes. in generalizations, That's but right. they're familiar enough that we all know Exactly. Truth. Sensitive, caring, those softer qualities. The reverse is not true where boys are not encouraged to emulate the qualities traditionally associated with women. It only goes one way. Right. And even in the most generous interpretation, if a boy is sensitive and nurturing and uh, emotional, at best, it's seen as unusual, right? Even in the most positive environment, it's, oh, well, look, at isn't that a sensitive boy? Yes. Yeah. Or he has to look like uh, Chris Hemsworth. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Sure. So- he has to look like Chris Hemsworth and then he can be sensitive and vulnerable and that's hot. And when he doesn't look like Chris Hemsworth and he like, I mean, you know, is more of an average dude, then we come up against all those stereotypes. Might be gay, right? Is effeminate. And as if it's an insult. Of course. And yeah, uh, it- we are all trying to shake that conditioning mm-hmm. and we have been all, I hope we're doing the work. It's not there yet. But uh, Rachel Guys's point is that when we don't encourage and elevate those softer qualities. Exactly. We're not creating complete human beings. And in the case of men, we are stifling their emotional output and their emotional ability to connect. And the worst case consequence of that is what we've seen cause pain and trauma and hurt in the world. Here in Toronto, we recently experienced a terrible, terrible thing. And we learned that this person may have been involved in a certain organization that is rooted in misogyny. And so these conversations around how and why these movements are building, um, are more and more attacking this idea of toxic masculinity. And the way that you we try and solve this problem of toxic masculinity, because let's face it, 99% of the, of the trauma and the devastation in the world is caused by men. Sure. Yeah. Yasik is rolling his eyes. No, but- I mean, look, <laughs> you're not wrong um, at all. I hear you. Uh, and I, and I don't disagree with you. And so when we talk about fiction and we talk about representations of who we want to see and the kinds of qualities that we want to illuminate and encourage, yes, by all means, let the woman be the spy and the killer. But I hope, too, that not only can we give a full spe- spectrum of roles for women, but a fuller spectrum for, man, for men. 
Yeah, I mean, I agree with you. And yet I also agreed with your earlier point that there's a much bigger swath of of roles that we accept for men given that they play, you yes, know. Yes, they've the, already been balanced the out. The hard and the yes. soft at the same time. Where, as we were talking about earlier, things that are traditionally feminine mm-hmm. are seen as not worth anybody's time. Um, this is one of those situations where you have to vote with your dollars, where you yeah. have to prove that things are important uh, with your dollars. With the Mindy Kaling just got an adaptation of Four Weddings and a Funeral. She's the, you know, m- arguably the most famous advocate for the return of the rom yeah. And uh, she's making a limited series on Hulu. Or, you know, the uh, the hybrid is the... Mila Kunis, Kate McKinnon, buddy comedy, uh, the the spy who dumped me, uh, which, you know, Sarah wrote about and shocked me into caring about this movie. Yeah. So, yeah, if you feel like there are underrepresented versions of women, yeah, then your movie going dollars need to represent all of them, you yeah. know, and to show them that you will show up for them. Mm-hmm. Which then in turn speaks to, you know, then we can have more movies like Love, Simon and more films that explore different sides of things like I don't have a second one because we're still in a place where that's not that uh, widespread yet. But that's the idea is that that's that's our actionable item Um, just to I like slipping a little corporate speak in there um, is to, yeah, take the money and put it in the surprising places so that the dudes who don't give a shit about who you get to see go, mm-hmm. well, hey, that makes money. I guess we'll make some more of those too. If you'll indulge me though, before we end, I do want to give a shout out to my own husband who rolled his eyes two minutes ago when I said that 99% of the mass destruction and devastation in the world is caused by men. I mean, and- if he's looking up a stat to to contradict <laughs> you that it's actually 97.98, I'm going to be really annoyed. Yeah, But I will say, though, about that book and about the different ways in which to be a man and how men need to participate in this conversation, Rachel Geiza said, she's the author of the book again, she was like, we do need men to show and model for other men that they can relate to each other on a vulnerable level. Mm -hmm. And... I find that Yasik does relate to his friends, male friends, in the way that she's suggesting that men model their behavior. He probably texts his best friend as much as you and I text. Right. And their texts are gossipy and sporty and very caring of one another. They give each other job advice. You know, they talk about, you know how, like, I'm always saying to you, oh, fuck my pimple or whatever. Right. They're talking to each other about their pimples. Um, They say, they tell each other that they care about each other and they miss each other. They make trips, they make plans to see each other because it's a long distance relationship. And I, I find myself thinking about this a lot as it relates to art and to life, which is inextricably connected. Yeah. Because these are the stories and the people I want to see. And I don't know that, we're there yet is what our point has been all night. And your last point is that that's where we have to see the money going. Yeah, absolutely. 
And, you know, if you can make a buddy comedy uh, about dudes who play out a whole hangover situation over text uh, while they're uh, also involved in their lives, that might be the breakthrough story of 2019. That's where we would put our money to. I would. So thank you for listening. Send us your thoughts and um, disagreements, what, dissents, right? <laughs> send us your thoughts. Uh, send us your messages. Please keep suggesting story ideas to us. We love it. Absolutely. We love feeling like you're in the room arguing with us. It's fantastic. Uh, hit us up on Twitter, on Instagram. Yell at us every way you know how. Don't forget our Met Gala coverage Tuesday, May 8th. Uh, check us out on iTunes and Spotify and Google Play. Leave comments. We'll be back next week. Bye. Bye. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.